The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for December 25th, 2015. It's Christmas. Hello and happy Merry Christmas. We're obviously not taping this on Christmas, even though Emily and I are Jewish and we are going to be talking to you, but we're not taping it on Christmas. But we have a special edition for you. It's our year's best GabFest. We've compiled some of our favorite segments, cocktail chatters, Slate Plus segments of the year, and uh, we're going to replay it for your pleasure. So it's a gift for you. We hope you like it. Exactly. So that's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. John Dickerson is not here to introduce the segment because he had to go catch a plane, but he uh, blessed it. <laughs> there will be a Slate Plus segment. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. So our first segment today is a discussion we had with ta Coates, who, of course, had a big year as a writer and commentator and conscience of America. After Freddie Gray's death and after the troubles in Baltimore, ta came and talked to us about his native city. He'd grown up right where Freddie Gray lived and had gone to school. And as always, he had very passionate and fascinating and brilliant things to say. Any, anything else you want to call out about this segment, Emily? I just remember how heartfelt this segment was and how emotional we were all feeling, I think especially ta since it was his city. So enjoy this segment about Freddie Gray with ta Coates. On Monday night, there was upheaval in the city of Baltimore as demonstrations associated with the, or following, I guess, the funeral of Freddie Gray turned violent. There was burning of buildings. The mayor and the governor brought in huge public security presence into the streets of the city, imposed a curfew. By Tuesday night, the city had reached a state of relative calm. But the fact remains that Gray's death while in police custody is a mystery. A healthy man paralyzed and then killed after a brief period under the care of the police. Uh, We don't know what happened, why it happened, how it happened, where culpability for his death lies. We've had death after death of black males uh, at the hands of the police. We had, of course, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott. I think I'm missing one. Now one prominent case and now Gray. And it just continues. And so obviously we want to talk about this week. And we have the person who I think we all want to hear from most on this, which is Ta-Nehisi Coates, who's a native Baltimorean. He's a national what did you say your title was, Tanahasi? National correspondent. correspondent for the Atlantic. Correspondent, yes. Um, grew up in the neighborhood where the violence and the protests were this week and has written very brilliantly. I just want to start by reading one paragraph from an essay he wrote in The Atlantic this week. When nonviolence is preached as an attempt to evade the repercussions of police brutality, it betrays itself when nonviolence begins halfway through the war with the aggressor calling time out. It exposes itself as a ruse when nonviolence is preached by the representatives of the state while the state doles out heaps of violence to its citizen. It reveals itself to be a con. So, Tanahasi, we've had a, a week almost to think about what's happened in Baltimore after the spasm of violence and then the crackdown and then the continued discussion. What, where do you sit after five days of this? Uh, probably uh, pretty much where I sat five days before it. Um, I think one of the um, you know, unfortunate things about the business that we work in is you know it, it's necessarily tied to 
big spectacular uh, events and in, in the, the events on Monday night were, you know, those sort of, of that variety and of that nature. But um, for, for those of us who grew up, you know, in the vicinity of Mondawmin Mall, uh, for those of us who have parents like I do, uh, my mom grew up in Gilmore Homes, uh, where Freddie Gray was from. This is not particularly new. What you have to do is you have to include uh, uh, the violence of police towards African-Americans uh, within the entire you know, scope of, of actual violence that African-Americans, and particularly young African-Americans, endure. Well, one of the things I really try to you know, get across when I'm talking about this is, is the, the, um, the ways in which violence you know, shapes young, young black lives in general is incomprehensible to most people. It always amazes me when I have discussions about school and school reform, and it does not, you know, come up just how much, you know, the average, you know, a young black student who's living in the inner city thinks about violence on, on, on a daily basis. It is a tremendous, tremendous amount. I state that from personal uh, experience, and that is not separate uh, from the violence of, of police officers. The violence of police officers, you know, uh, towards African Americans uh, is particularly horrific because you go to the state to protect you. And you find the state not acting, you know, not uh, like a guardian, but acting like any other force that you see out on the street. But at the same time, it's sort of, you know, everyday violence that African-Americans endure, which seems often to be, you know, dealt out at the hands of people whom we live around, our neighbors, you know, that turn black on black crime, is in fact also the result of policy that, that were passed. And so, you know, I, I see it as a, of a piece. The, the story, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't, doesn't begin Monday night. Is it the opposite, then? Is it, you're, were you, you know, could you argue you're surprised it didn't happen sooner? No, um, I mean you never know when you know a, a particular reaction is, is going to be, you know, felt or how people are going to be right. I, I just I'm just not surprised. It, it just doesn't. I mean, specifically, just let's just focus zero in on Freddie Gray. So use all of the stuff I said about violence and think about the deprivation and, and all of that as background. I think I was reading something recently. It said that the area where this where this popped off uh, in Winchester, uh, it has the highest incarceration rate in the state. Okay, so that's that's a consistently intense, violent relationship with the state, because that's what, you know, prison is. You know, it is, it is violence. And people come home and they bring that back. I mean, you know, they talk about it, and then you go in, and, and that becomes part of the cycle. But let's just lay that as the backdrop. They arrest this guy, and we don't know what they arrested him for. It looks like he made the mistake of making eye contact with a police officer and then ran. They didn't find drugs on him or anything like that. I found a switchblade on him. And he was arrested. The people in the community have no idea what crime he actually committed. And then he died. He's in state custody, and then he died. And the people who are allegedly responsible uh, or held accountable by the people in that neighborhood, the people who, you know, the, uh, the police, who, you know, Maryland State authorities claim serve and protect the people that live in that neighborhood. In fact, the police have given no, you know, account for how this guy ended up with his spine 80% severed. That is incredible. You don't know why the state took him to begin with. And you don't know how the state, you know, how he managed to die in the state's care. And so if they arrested Freddie Gray in that sort of way, you have to assume that that's not abnormal. They would probably say that that's a, a, a procedure for fighting, you know, drug, you know, against drugs or drug deals or drug use or, or whatever. But you have to think about how many, you know, young African-Americans who found themselves in that very same situation, not really clear on what they got arrested for. Maybe not dying. I mean, this is like the, 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 the superlative of it. But the uh, police are clearly just not accounting what all to the people who live in that neighborhood. And if you continue that over a period of time, the idea that the reaction to that consistently is going to be nonviolent is absurd. I mean, it's, it's absolutely absurd. We can go back and forth about, you know, whether, you know, protests should be nonviolent or not. You know, just like, you know, we can go back and forth about whether they should be global warming or not. 
But if you pump, you know, enough CO2 in the atmosphere, certain things are going to happen. You know, and if you heap violence, if violence is the way that you respond, you know, when folks have drug issues, employment issues, you know, issues that we normally deal with through the social safety net, uh, mental health issues, if you respond with violence, well, at some point, the community is going to respond violently, too. It seems like the dynamic here is pathologized that this, you know, reading up on the history of Baltimore a little bit, there have been decades of policies that were pro-segregation. Then there was the drug war, which has affected deeply the relationship between the police and the community. From the outside, it feels intractable in this very frustrating way when you read about endemic, particularly urban poverty in this country. It goes back generations. It seems like there are so many policy reasons for it that are deeply embedded. And then also, you know, Baltimore has African-American leadership right now. So that simple fact is not enough to change things. Um, And I guess it I don't want to feel like it's intractable because it's such an important problem to address. Um, What do you feel like community leaders are coming up with in terms of moving forward? Because they've been out in force. Well, I don't know what they're, what they're coming up with, but I'll just say two things. It's certainly nine. So, I mean, let's just, again, let's take the very specific Freddie Gray incident. One of the reasons why we don't know what actually happened is because there's something called a law enforcement officer's bill of rights, which means that folks get like this 10-day cooling off period, don't necessarily have to answer questions. It's a, 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 an absurd, you know, range of, of, of um, you know, I'm hesitating even to call them rights, but just an absurd, an absurd range of protections for people that you give maximum power to you know, to go out and kill people. That, that was a policy that was actually passed. You know what I mean? And, you know, I was reading up on this yesterday. It was a policy that was passed directly in, in response to civil rights movement protests against police brutality in the early 1970s. We don't have to have that policy. We don't have to have that policy, you know, uh, but we do. Uh, it, it is only intractable as far as I'm concerned. You're right, and I, you know, I'm not so much disagreeing with you. I mean, it's only intractable in the sense there are, you know, a, a web of policies that, that have led us here. But I, I don't think it's impossible to undo them. I think it would take a great deal of patience. I think it would take a great deal of time. And as always, and as I've said before and I'll keep saying, you know, I think it would take reparations. I think that would have to be part of it. But I don't think it's impossible. Tanahasi, I want to go back to something you started with, which is the violence that that African Americans face every day. One of the things that's been striking about what's happened in the United States over the past 20 years, it's been an enormous drop in certainly in murder, but in violent crime generally. And so your risk of being killed if you're a if you're somebody living in, in any American city is much lower than it used to be. And I think if you're privileged and rich, this has been a particularly great thing. You feel like, oh, the city is is great, it's perfect, it's all good. Talk about the kind of contradiction or the the balance between the fact that violence is actually in decline by many measures with the fact that if you are poor and African-American or poor and in urban poverty, that conditions are not really any particularly better than they used to be? Well, the first thing is, and and I I just want to, like, being killed is like the worst thing that could possibly happen, right? But there's there's a whole, you know, range of violent things that happen to you, you know, along the way. This this recent wave of, like, uh, police violence that we're now paying attention to, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions, involves lethal violence today you know you, you're not seeing the reports for instance off camera where an officer just you know threatens you for instance um or an officer you know just punches you off camera you know like, like a whole range of things where you're stopped and harassed for no reason they just you know won't show up in the data and, and it's very much the same way uh in terms of being an african-american I, you know listen when i went to middle school I, I can't count the incidents that i endured that you would now call assault and battery 
I don't think uh, we went to the police one time. So you're talking about over the course of, I was in there seventh and eighth grade, over the course of two years. That that was just part of life. I mean, the term we used in Baltimore is like getting banked, which meant that, you know, some three, four or five or more people jumped on you, you know, and just, just beat you up, you know, just beat the hell out of you, right? That happened to everybody I knew. Nobody went to the police. Nobody went to the police. And they, and they weren't, you know, wrong for, you know, they didn't go to the police because the police couldn't really stop what was actually happening and the reasons why that was actually happening. And I assure you, that is very, very much present, you know, in, in, in the lives of young African-Americans today. And, and when you live like that, when you, when you live in, in a space where violence is, is constant, you assume a kind of posture. And it's very interesting to me, you know, this, this, this language we use about what's violent and what's not. There's a, a video, and I'm sure you guys have probably seen it by now, and there's a mother who comes across her, her son at one of the protests. He's about right. to throw a rock, or he just had thrown a rock. And she starts, like, just beating the hell out of him. You know what I mean? And cursing at him, calling him all sorts of things. You know, I, I understand that. You know, my mom, who I talked to about this, probably would have had the same response. But I watched how, you know, this behavior w- was celebrated and how, you know, the woman ended up on, you know, the morning shows and in all the newspapers and, you know, people, you know, basically saying that this is what, you know, parenthood should be. We need more parents like that. But I know, you know, living in New York, if I was riding on the Q train and I saw and somebody saw these same people, a mother like that, cursing at her child, smacking her child and assaulting it, they would call that, that, that would be horrifying. That's right. They would find that absolutely horrifying, you know. Um, but I, I think it just, you know, goes to show that under some circumstances, we're okay with the violence or the lives of these young black kids endure. And in other cases, you know, we just sort of turn away. And in other cases, we apologize and, you know, make it a case about them and, you know, their sort of, of cultural problems. But it, it, it's very, very real there. I mean, if you look at the character in terms of even if you just use mean, rough statistics about how violent life is for African-Americans now, even with the drop compared to, you know, other groups, it's just it's not even close. It's not even close. Donahasi, I talked to Elijah, Elijah Cummings, who represents this district, and um, and you know one of the things he talked about in addition in addition to that kind of what you're describing is kind of being encased in violence in the day to day. What he what he was talking about also is when you are in a community where and he talked about the um, the Orioles Stadium and the fact that he said you know none of those kids live in the neighborhood around it have ever been into that stadium, and mm-hmm, so for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the stadium is a monument of all that they cannot have. And that that what they are also encased in is the privilege of everybody else and, you know, people who didn't grow up in homes where there's enough lead to poison you, whose mothers, um, you know, Freddie Gray's mom was uh, addicted, I think, at some point to heroin. Um, And his point was that that adds to the weight here, too. It's not just the weight of the police who are always on you or the violence that's always a part of your life, but there is a... There's a whole other thing, a whole other bunch of weight that's on you, that you see it in the stadium, you see it in life where there are these incredible disparities. So that part of it that the congressman was talking about doesn't have anything really to do with the relationship with the police, but he thought it was very much a part of the story, too. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I actually think even the things that we think are about police are actually not, in fact, about the police. Again, I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you, you know, if you did, you know, the math, on why, you know, Freddie Gray was arrested uh, to begin with, you will end up uh, in a conversation about drug policy. And I say that to say that, you know, we have regrettably a tradition in this country, a very, very long tradition uh, of addressing the problems of African-Americans, the problems that we see in African-American uh, communities through criminal justice. And, and that's been the case with a, with a, a large number 
but he's shooting him. So behind uh, the, the shooting of Walter Scott, which looks so brutal. I mean, clearly that officer had lost his mind to shoot somebody in the back like that. But you always have to go back. So why was Freddie Gray running? Well, you know, it's probably a conversation to be had there about our policy in terms of child support. There was a young man down in Atlanta who was killed recently. He, he was butt naked, shot by the police, butt naked. You know, clearly didn't have any weapon on him. Well, why was he shot down? Well, the police were called. Turned out he was having some sort of mental health issue. There's probably a way of looking at, you know, the, the killing of Tamir Rice. As brutal as that looks when you look on camera and having a conversation about resources available, you know, in terms of, you know, making sure that kids are occupied and that sort of thing. So I strongly suspect that the police are just like, that's where the confrontation happens. That's the flash point. That's when, you know, everybody, you know, sort of wakes up and pays attention. But I think it's very, very important for people to dial it back, you know, and say, okay, but how did we even end up in this place to, to begin with? You know, it, it is as if you were writing a history of World War II, and it begins with the D-Day landing or something like that, which some histories do. But <laughs> that's, that's like how you're, you know, how, how we're looking at it. I mean, that, that, that's our perspective on all of this. And so even like terms like police reform, I think are inappropriate. It is much bigger. You know, police go where we send the police to go. Right. So they're like the tool of implementation of this system that we've implemented, right, in these cities and towns. And then Mm -hmm. they're all the people on the receiving end and they're on that receiving end for all these like underlying reasons. But in fact, the way the police treat them is like one more manifestation of the disparity. But don't you guys think that the way this all of this is unfolding and the discussion, the discussion is really around the police, the police's relationship to violence, the police's relationship to violence towards black men, and that it really, it's, it, ha, it has, even in the discussion around Baltimore, it has remained focused around that. Is we have, we've kept, everyone is keeping the focus on this question of the police and their relationship to African-American citizens. And it isn't, there isn't a larger lens that people are able to examine it with. How could well, we get we to a larger lens? Well, are we scared of the lens? larger well, they... lens? Because a larger lens means redistribution of wealth. Like, it means really addressing inequality and the, you know, lack of opportunity in some neighborhoods and cities because they've been kind of walled off. So the the cops are a hard enough problem. Well, and there's other ways to open the lens, too. I mean, there, when Rand Paul says it's about the fathers, that's opening that's opening the lens. It's just opening it in a different way than what you're suggesting, Emily, which is redistribution of wealth. I mean, there are people who are searching for larger, you know, issues here. It's just um, that gets you but, pretty but quickly. The, but the, the first answer that you hear, and Hillary Clinton, I think, in her speech was more expansive than just this. But again, the, the headline from it is body cameras. Or mass incarceration. Well, mass incarceration, but body cameras and mass incarceration. Yeah. Well, or wait a second, maybe mass incarceration wasn't such a good idea. I mean, we are hearing right. that from no, the anti-mass incarceration. Yeah, not yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, no, good, good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, she wasn't saying. No, she was saying the opposite. But that's kind of probably where we are now. That's where we are. You know, the conversation will start to get bigger, but then, then it'll get diffuse. And I just, just really quickly, I, I feel like it would behoove me to just comment on that that, that Rand Paul piece. Uh, God, where to start? I'm laughing about the train. I mean, it's just like repugnant. And Rand Paul is getting like a lot of credit, you know, for quote unquote. If this is the outreach, if if that's the outreach, oh my God. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't like, like, he's got a ways to go on that train. I mean, I mean, that that is incredible. That, that, That just, that just is incredible. And see, like, when you hear somebody like, like, make light of that in that sort of way and then follow it with the fathers. You know, listen, hey, I'm a fan of fathers. I had a father. I wrote a book. You know, this, 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 the, the subtitle of the book is, 
two boys, one father, and the unlikely road to man. I, you know, I'm, I'm for fatherhood. I'm in the fatherhood. You know, I think it, you know, it'd be a great world if there were more fathers present in the lives of, of, of African-American men. But to even that, it, you know, African-Americans, but to even that takes you back to a policy question. Because you have to ask, but why? Why not? Why, why, why aren't there more fathers around? What, what, what's actually happening there? You know, it, it ultimately, you know, becomes some sort of policy. But you, when you hear a guy laughing about, you know, the train not stopping, which it probably did, but laughing about the train not stopping and then, you know, sort of blithely hand-waving, you know, at fault, that, that's, it just, it, it's not a serious discussion. I think the father thing is a real thing. I think the state of African-American families is a real thing. You know, I don't know how that, you know, gets us away from policy, though. If you guys had to bet, just last question, in a year when we're in the full heat of the presidential campaign, will either these kind of police violence questions or the larger questions of poverty in cities, will either of those be actual campaign issues that anyone will be paying any no, attention to? No, no, no. I mean, I think there'll be something about in the platform specifically. Like, it's very popular to be against mass incarceration right now. So I think there'll be something in the platforms about that. Um, but this this will not be a decisive issue at, at all. I, I just don't think. I I would agree with that. I, the um, you know they talk about poverty. Um, the candidates do on both sides, but you never you never go to an event in East Des Moines, right? You always go to the West Des Moines because you don't want to go to East Des Moines where you know it's there are no vote no people are going to vote for. And in this case. It's mostly for the Republican candidates, but Hillary Clinton's not going to East Des Moines either. So, is East Des Moines where the poor people live in Des Moines yeah, for us yeah. non-Iowans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's the place where you can go and cover politics for 20 years and never go into that part of – and it's not very far. You don't have to – like all you got to do is point your car and drive a couple of miles. Um, what's even more striking this time around is it's not just the normal drive-by. You remember in 2008, we had a Democratic primary in which John Edwards talked about poverty. The other two candidates talked about poverty as long as he made it an issue, and then he dropped out of the race and you never heard about it again. So you do hear people mention uh, the poor in their speeches, Rand Paul, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, but they don't – You know, that's it's just a line in a speech. They're, nobody's going – nobody's doing w- – the way you show attention to an issue in a speech – I'm sorry, in a campaign is you do it over and over and over again. You know, you show up at those places. You get seen photographed in those places. That just isn't happening. You know, there's something – sometimes in this conversation, I feel like America's made this bargain with itself. We're going to have really desperate rank poverty in return for what we see as more opportunity. Like that's the political trade-off for not having a sufficient safety net. So that's upsetting enough in itself. But I also get worried that we are more and more separate from people who are different from ourselves. Like that the the ease with which you can never cross over to the East Des Moines of wherever you happen to live only grows. And that that actually means that, okay, so episodically a video like this one of Freddie Gray surfaces and it's hugely upsetting and we pay attention for a moment. But then there isn't enough real sustained momentum for a form because of – Division. I feel dangerously unequipped to answer that question. Um, it's not really answerable. One, <laughs> no, well, I think one of the things is very difficult for me to understand, like what the, the psychology is, like the mass psychology is. I do think the focus on the individual uh, in America makes it very, very hard for people to understand, like what, what's happening. So, you know, if you can look at Barack Obama and say, "Well, he made it. Why can't you?" Like, that shows it's possible, and as long as it's possible, everything's okay. 
it does not matter that effectively it is impossible. You know what I mean? That like, you know, it's possible for the individual, but it's actually not possible for most people. I think that's like really, really hard. It, it like constricts us. Like you can't really have a conversation about racism or about white supremacy without people feeling like you're saying you individually are a bad person. You individually are a bad human being or you individually, you know, your grandfather was a bad human being or, or, or something like that. I mean, it's the reason why anytime this stuff comes up, you know, you get a Clive and Bunny, the person says, well, Clive is a great guy. Clive is a great father. <laughs> you know, um, it, it's very hard for people to see systems at work and then policies actually at work that, you know, do not much care about whether you're a great person or, or not. Tanahasi Coates is national correspondent for the Atlantic. Tanahasi, thanks so much. Come back uh, anytime, and we'll talk. Thank to you. you. Thanks for having me, guys. Okay. Now here's our second segment. Emily, you picked this one. I did. I hope that wasn't a mistake. I listened to part of it no. again and thought that it would hold up because we were talking about these tricky questions of gender and employment and essentially like access to your boss. The question of whether if you have a male boss surrounded by or or has in the office younger female staffers, whether that boss is justified in distancing himself, kind of walling himself off from the younger women who work for him in the name of decorum or maybe avoiding temptation, but whether in fact he is also disadvantaging them. I was just thinking about this the other day, which is that I I have fallen out of the habit. I used to really hug a lot of my colleagues at Slate. I don't do that nearly as much at Atlas Obscura. If, you know, we had our office party the other night, and I did not give hugs to any of my colleagues, male or female. And I thought about that. And I was like, why, why have I not done that? Maybe I should have. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. Huh. Do you think you did it at Slate because you'd grown up more with those people as opposed to coming in as the boss, and that just gave you a greater level of comfort? I think so. Yeah, and also everyone, you know, like you or John and I, we can't, we grew up at Slate together. Right. We were all the same age. People at Slate were more my age. and Right. Well, maybe yeah. if you only know people as the slightly older boss, it's different to hug them. And actually, you just don't want to introduce physical touch into the whole equation. I could see that, although it's a little sad. I don't know. It was. Not, it, it didn't feel like it wasn't a big deal. I just, I, as I left the office party, I thought, that's interesting. I wonder why that happened. Mm. So enjoy this segment about gender workplaces with no doubt brilliant comments from Emily Bazelon sprinkled throughout. <laughs> in New York, an anthropologist with the unlikely name of Wednesday Martin delighted all the non-rich people in the country with a New York Times article on Sunday about people she called the glam Sams, the glamorous stay-at-home mothers of wealthy Manhattan. These are women married to rich men, often finance industry types, hedge fund, private equity guys. And these women have, have withdrawn from the workforce to raise their children in single-sex enclaves in which their primary activities are Pilates classes, lots of lunches with, with white wine flowing plentifully, competition to get into private schools. And most pungently, the detail that has stuck out of the story was something called the wife bonus, which is that when your hedge fund husband gets a bonus at the end of the year, you, the wife, also get a bonus based on your performance in wifeness. So did you get the kids into a good private school? How's the household running? Is your status in the community up? So the wife bonus is part one of this. This Exhibit 2, which brings us back to politics, is a study that was published by the National Journal this week and elaborated on by Catherine Rampell of the Washington Post about the sexual mores of Capitol Hill. And part of it just chronicled the general 
sexism that women who work on the Hill perceive, just being talked down, talked over, uh, ignored in, in work. But there was one particular strange habit that appears to have taken over a lot of the Hill, which is that many male bosses, and I think it was really counting male senators and members of Congress, will not be alone in a room with female staffers. And they won't be driven by a female staffer just alone. And the idea is that there is, this is, there's a perception. In some cases, this is put on the, the wife of the legislator doesn't want this. In some cases, it's just the, the legislator himself thinks it's his, this is a problem for image or maybe who knows what. Obviously, this, is, this has a baleful impact on women who want to professionally advance because they just don't get to be as close with their bosses, their male bosses, as they might. John, first of all, in your experience, have you heard of this fact of women on the Hill not being allowed to be alone with male principals? Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's not just on the Hill. I think there are CEOs and other areas of life where people have these kinds of rules. Can we stipulate that this is a form of discrimination and it is bad for women's careers? And then also ask whether we can understand why men would institute such a rule? Right, particularly politicians. I mean, I think that's exactly right, Emily. I mean, when I've heard about it, I'm trying to remember who, which lawmaker... I heard about this with Trent Lott years ago. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the lawmaker who talked about it. A lawmaker I remember explaining and basically saying the reason he didn't do it is because he didn't want to be tempted. I mean, that it wasn't just about appearances, which is the other big reason, which is the... If the appearance is there, especially now in the, you know, somebody's going to write about it as fact, and then you spend your time trying to deny a fact that isn't true. I feel like I don't want to be tempted is the totally not okay thing to say about yeah, it Yeah, no, that's that why No I one was... would admit that, although, of course, that's part of what's but, happening. But can you name an example of somebody who has been written about as, as being too close to a female staffer where there wasn't actually an affair? Like, so, so I feel like that this whole thing that, oh, people will accuse us of an affair is bull. Huh. That's that they, interesting. That they, there are people who get accused of affairs basically because they're having affairs. But you also, I think people are protecting themselves against false accusations, which we don't But I don't, don't think there entirely... are any false. Can you name a single false accusation? Right. But you don't affair? find the no. notion of false ac- accusation implausible, especially after we just had a long conversation about what may be a totally false accusation. Right. To well, obviously not, to not what may be, what is a false accusation. We just don't know on whose side. So clearly it's a plausible worry for a lawmaker to have, whether it's actually happened or not, is separate. I, is a right, separate they're idea. awfully blackmailable, right? I mean, the other thing is to bring this back to university for a moment, because I once sometimes work in one. Nobody I know closes their door when they have students. Now, I think the wise way to handle this, and there was someone on, in Congress who does this, is to have the same rules for both genders. But I'm, I know, I know that men at university, male professors are much more cognizant of not being alone in their offices with female students but, but than stu- I am but, about male students. But also, it's not that you can't have, you can't have that. The university situation is not the same as an office because in university situation, you're dealing with a student. That is not a working relationship. That's not a relationship. Yes, it is. I mean, you could argue that, you know, if men don't want to be as, if they're keeping their female students at a distance, that those girl, those young women are not going to get the same level of advising and help, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you absolutely can argue that there's a problem. Oh, oh, I'm not saying there's not a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. I'm saying that what I'm saying is that in an office, 
you can't have a rule which says you can never be alone with a male or a female staffer in your office because you have to be as somebody who is a boss of people. It is very frequent that I have to be alone with people who work for me. Like it happens all the time. I have to. Right. It would have been really weird if you'd had that rule at Slate. Yeah. And, and that the door, the door has to be. No, the door shouldn't be open because you're having a sensitive discussion about something which people shouldn't hear. And, and it, the answer is not that you shouldn't you should have the same rules for. Well, you should have the same rules for both genders, which is that you should be able to close the door if you want or not close the door if you don't want to. And that's perfectly fine to have a closed door meeting with a female colleague, even one who's 20 years younger than you or 20 years older than you. It doesn't make any difference. And people hmm. just have so to. So you think this is just irrational? All of this. I think that people have to get over men, in particular, have to get over the idea that they're going to be constantly accused of, of something, and they have to learn to work with women as equal work colleagues. Yeah. What if the real driver is the, is the one that that lawmaker who I can't remember um, mentioned, which is basically you know. The old Jimmy Carter line, I've lusted in my heart. What if men know this about themselves and institute this rule in order to keep themselves from uh, falling into bad behavior in a moment of weakness? Well, what if they do it for that reason and not the Jezebel's going to write about this reason? Then David has a good exercise class and a stiff drink for them. You know, you're an adult. You're an adult who has gotten to a position of authority because you're able to exercise self-discipline. So... Exercise some freaking self-discipline. Well, except that most we've seen time and time again that the exercise of self-discipline in one area of life has no bearing on one's ability to exercise self-discipline in another. And in fact, we know from the study of willpower that when you exercise it in one, which is to say your public duties, which require you to be and maintain a certain posture, you know, 23 hours out of the day, that you exhaust your total store of willpower, which makes you more susceptible to failures of will and self-control in the private sphere. I don't know. I, yes, I suppose you're right, John. But think of it this way. Has anyone ever had this discussion about Hillary Clinton? Is Hillary Clinton alone with male aides? I bet she is all the time. We as a society just need to stop judging it and stop caring about it and stop thinking it's a reasonable topic. But that question about Hillary Clinton be... over, jumps over the fact that men are pigs. Men are scum. Are they scum or pigs? I do not subscribe to this view of men. I just want to say, but David, are you saying that people are going to, of course, they're going to have lust in their heart and that's okay? And in fact, like the intimacy of the workplace, of our workplaces, tends to thrive even on some level of that. And sure, people are going to flirt. They just can't go have sex. And like that's where the line is. And that's obvious. Or are you saying something else? Yeah, that's basically what I think. Yes, that that. That you can't get, you cannot rid the world of sexual tension. You can't rid the workplace of sexual tension. But you can also create a world in which you have expectations that we're going to engage in professional behavior with each other. I, the, the only one of these rules I liked was that it was after 7 o'clock at night. I loved that. And before 7 a.m. That and before was great. 7 yeah. Just general workplace rule. We can all agree with that. At that point, you have to go home and work on your phone. Yeah, and that's um, and that, that's a, that's you can and you can make that for both sexes. Like, I'm not going to be alone with with a single staffer after 7 p.m. in my office or before. I mean, 7 I feel like does that apply? This... Does that apply to Skype? <laughs> Doesn't apply to Skype <laughs> unless you're like Anthony Weiner or the something. Screen you're doing. Um, but see, David, I feel like your take on this, where it, while it absolutely has to be the sort of legal 
a framework and assumption and it's super sensible and I, you know, respect it, it's not going to ever be attainable for 100 percent of the human population. That's just not how people are. are. There are always going to be people who cross this line. Yeah. Yeah, there are. And so therefore, so then the, do we the blame people... them for trying for hedging, like for trying to make it easier on themselves for in setting some way up, or right. trying to create the appearance right. that putting I don't the know dessert in is. a locked cabinet so they don't get it? Right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 that's a good point. But I, I think we do blame them if it causes the women who work for them to not be able to advance or have the kind of careers that they deserve based on the talent they have. Right. I know. But I can hear in my head various men I know rolling their eyes and saying, essentially, like, what did you think was going to happen? You scared me. You made me feel like I don't like the last thing I want is to be labeled a sexual harasser. And now I am taking precautions. And maybe they are in some way disadvantaging some woman, but tough. Yeah, that's this is a conservative line, which is that this is a feminist sort of blame for this because they're constantly going to file complaints. Right. So we should at least air it, even if we don't agree with it. I mean, Emily, this is you. This is much more relevant for you. Do you feel like, as someone who would be the victim of this, that the avoidance strategy is a is a legitimate strategy? Yeah, I mean, I have this one memory from college of having a male professor who. Um, I really liked, felt comfortable with, didn't feel particular sexual tension with, and then having the semester end and I had to turn – I can't remember. There was some reason why I offered to bring it over to his house and I remember that he freaked out and and that it made me feel really weird that he thought that like the idea that I was going to ride my bike to his house, knock on the door and hand him something – was like a big uh, thing. And I didn't do it. I was made totally uncomfortable. It definitely has stuck with me. And I doubt he would have responded in the way that way to a male student. On the other hand, like, I don't know how bad is that? Well, look, that just happens to be the one thing I remember. Sure. If I had never, you know, when you were my boss, if I'd never been able to be alone in a room with you, that would have been bad. Yeah. The, did you remember the scene in Borgen? Did you guys see Borgen? Where doesn't that yes. exactly happen? The female student comes by to drop over a paper with a handsome Right, yes. Husband. And the wife freaks out. And the wife freaks out. And then he has an affair with her, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Aren't they like gardening or something? Yeah, they're out in the garden up? and she shows up. I think she, she yeah. probably it was Denmark, so she almost certainly biked over because there's right. no other way to get there. Let's, let's. Yeah, I mean, look. Right. Oh, yeah. John, is this a, is this a, um, an ideological split too? Is this, is it Republicans who are not doing this? No, Republicans who are, are not doing it? Or who, are not, who are not meeting, who are not... Yeah, I, I mean, my, I associate it with, um, with conservative lawmakers much more than Democratic ones. Um, for a third reason, which we haven't talked about, which I guess is related to the one, which is it's just like polite behavior or something. Like, that's not right. But it's a norm of a certain kind of people from a certain part of our culture that you just like, that's, you don't, you know, you're not alone with a woman, not your wife right, at right. Certain, at times. And even right. if it's somebody who, who you work with, like you don't go out to dinner with them. You don't, I mean, it's just not like, that's just not what you do. And I think the reason it's just not what you do again, is that, you know, we're all, or in the way this thinking would go, we're all fallen, we're all sinners and and subject to temptation, and therefore don't put yourself in a position where you can be tempted. And that's definitely the way it came up in the in the Clinton context, which is like the minute you're alone with an intern who's a woman for more than like a minute, you're issuing the invitation that you should never be in that position 
um, and you should know that you should never be in that God, position. It's and so, so you selfish. Already... It's so selfish. It's so making about you rather than thinking what is the what is what is the good of my constituents? The good of my constituents <laughs> is that I have productive workers. The yeah. good of this woman is sure. that she have a productive career where she, if she has smart advice for me as a congressman, I, I'm going to be able to get it. It's just so Well, I don't think the, the advice is a stopped by having a second person in the room. But intimacy, professional intimacy, is can be super valuable. To be a confidant of someone is valuable. And being a confidant of someone is not a sexual relationship. It's a... It's a great professional relationship or can be. I don't know. Can I ask you guys a different question or test out a theory for you about vices? So, you know, sex, drinking, even gluttony, they're all off the table if you're a politician or a human being. You're not supposed to do any of those things. So if you're that person who's holding it together 23 hours of the day and you need some kind of outlet, I feel like there are only two things left. There's extreme exercise and Murder. adventure. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I was going to say, like, planning a trip <laughs> Yeah, to some no one crazy should spend place. time alone with David because um, <laughs> I think that's an extremely good point, Emily. I think – and you look at the people who – I mean, we've seen the relationship between sexual indiscretion and power lots and lots of times. And you see – and then we also have seen the relationship between power and extreme exercise increasingly in our lawmakers – um, right. Like, this is what they be, do. They get up at 5 a.m. and they, like, go crazy on the treadmill. It's yeah, the only I'm, way they can I'm – not, yeah. I'm not thinking that that's – I don't think you can scratch the itch with just by exercising, is based on my understanding of the human condition. But um, <laughs> the, um, I think you're right, though. I think you're onto something. All the, and the problem with the reason it's got to be exercise and not adventure is, like, you can't go to Borneo – at 5.30 every day, you know? like Right, exactly. You, yeah, Borneo only works up. as like the once a year outlet, right? It could be sort of like the affair maybe, but yeah, agreed. Well, well I guess that's true. As, but these guys are all married. They're allowed to have, there's licit sex they're allowed to have. Yeah, but I don't think that's why, they're, that's why people have affairs. But, yeah, but not. I but does everyone, is your view that everyone has to either Everyone has to indulge a vice, so it either has to be illicit sex, illicit drinking, illicit drugs, or it has to be licit exercise and licit no, adventure. No, I'm saying I something slightly different. I hope everyone doesn't have to do one of these three things. I'm saying that in the human condition, the except, we used to make more room, especially for people who were important and powerful, for these other vices. And right. now we've crossed all these things off the list. And I can't really see what else is left. And I accept this sort of miserable existence of like running on the treadmill every day at 5 a.m., which I agree with John is not in the end probably going to do it. Huh. That's good. All right. That was that was great. Do we have anything to say about these Upper East Side uh, wealthy women who are getting wife bonuses? I really wonder how many of these wife bonuses actually exist. I don't in think the they world. exist. It really seemed like an urban legend to yeah. me. Maybe like or one maybe or two. There were like yeah, two cases where and now you know, yeah, that's the way it felt to me. Yeah. Certainly right. no one has offered me one. Huh. That's a good question. I guess my husband would be the only one. <laughs> Who else would have offered it? Yes. Some member of Congress is going to be offering you. you don't, stop now. Stop now. Stop way. talking. Stop it. Uh, don't reveal anything else, Emily, on advice of counsel. <laughs> okay. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. 
Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our third segment, this is one I chose. John actually is very skeptical about it when I talked to him about it. So this is a live a segment we did live at the Bell House in, uh, must have been April. Oh, yeah, yeah. we April. had a big division of whether this succeeded or not. A big division. So we did it as a live show, and we did a show on the 150th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's assassination. We didn't pick the date for that, but it happened that the show fell on that date. And we decided to do a discussion as though we were doing a GabFest shortly after Lincoln's assassination. So we just imagined we were in 1865 and we were political pundits and the president has it's just we've just learned the president has been killed. What kind of conversation would we be having? We just got into character. We didn't announce it. We just jumped right in. I loved the gimmick. I thought it was really fun. John dressed up. He dressed up as a 19th century. Oh, yeah, that was really cute. Uh, I forgot that. The way a 19th century press man might have looked. I thought it was great. And you'll, you'll the beginning, you'll hear um, an announcement apparently coming over, interrupting the show with the news of the president's assassination. I loved that segment. Did you like that segment, Emily? I really loved it. I think I was deeply insecure about whether we pulled it off because it's more performance art than we normally try our hand at. Enjoy it. Okay, let's move on to our third topic. I mean, I am interested, like, just in the Hillary thing. If anyone spots her in the neighborhood. David, this just in. President Abraham Lincoln was shot through the head last night at Ford's Theater and died this morning. The assassin is supposed to be J. Wilkes Booth, the actor. Secretary Stanton pronounced the president dead at 22 minutes after 7 o'clock, declaring, now he is for the ages. Andrew Johnson has been sworn in as the 17th president of these United States. Wow. That is, um, that's very surprising and sobering news. I mean, here we are at the end of the end of the great war that's divided us. And it's a moment of national reconciliation. And, and for this to happen just as our president entered his second term is, is it's, this is grave news. Let's consider this though, Emily. What do you think the president's death does to the efforts to bring the secesh states back into back into the Union? Why is that what you're concerned about now? The southern states? What about the people who live in them, whose rights have been trampled for all these years? What do we do to help all these black people who are newly free, who are going to need to gain their footing, are going to need help financially to get started and who are going to need legal rights, which, you know, okay, we passed the 13th Amendment, but that does not get us where we need to go. Why is your first concern these states and their rights? I mean, I think, Emily, we're, you know, we've had a a terrible war 
And I think it's, as I think President Johnson will articulate soon, this, <laughs> we have to stop thinking of ourselves as two nations, one blue and one gray, that we're really, we're a kind of blue-gray nation now. And that, that the important thing that we need to do is to bring these states back into the union very quickly, to let them recover from the war, and for the government in Washington to sort of focus on things like the Transcontinental Railroad, to focus on national issues and not to concern itself so much with with what's happened. John. Look, it's... <laughs> that Transcontinental Railroad. That's you one know, for the... Yeah, I'm the sure Transcontinental all, Railroad look, is a very important it, issue, Emily. So, Infrastructure. you guys are both nuts. Let's think for a minute here about the horror of the thing. I mean, my, you know, my mind is a world. There's not just the horror of his death, but you can't walk uh, anywhere now in the aftermath without passing a building covered in crepe. People are in tears in the street. It's impossible to pass anybody who's not wearing a black armband. And this is the last casualty of the war. There will be other people who died. This is the last casualty of the war. And... I mean, as you know, my relationship with the president was strained, but... It was? He was never clear whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, John. And it never will be. But you know, a week before this happened, he had a dream, and he went, in the dream, he went down into the White House and saw an aide who said, who he asked what happened, and they said, the president is dead. And yet... In conversation, he always said, I could wear chain mail and never be protected. No one will come assassinate the president. And so, like, he called his own killing, his own death. John, I, I mean, I, I applaud your sense of the gravity of the moment. And I think it's, you, you're right that this is, a, this is a horror unknown in American history. We have, after... You know, nearly 100 years, we have not had a, a president killed. We've never had a, our leader killed, and this is a change. But this is a, also a moment where the tide of history is moving very, very quickly. We have the war has ended, and we have to start to make very fast decisions about what's going to happen. And the time we spend in mourning over President Lincoln, a great captain of our country, the time we spend in mourning is time that is not spent in bringing Alabama and Georgia in South Carolina, back into the Union, and getting our troops home out of the South, and in moving the country forward. And, and, that, and so I'm interested in like how we're going to deal with the radical Republicans who are going to be attempting to, so, to okay. foist things right. on this country when really we need to move forward. So his idea was keep the Union, right? So how do you keep the Union? Do you punish, or do you forgive? Right? You want to re-knit the Union? So what do you do with all those Confederate soldiers? It's okay, you're back in. Just pledge allegiance to the Union and you're back I in. just don't see how the Confederate soldiers are our priority right there now. There are more of them, and they are going to live in this portion of the country. What are you going to do with them? But you can't ship them off to sea. there are all these people who literally are destitute and need sustenance, need help figuring out how to live their own lives. And this is the window. This is the moment of opportunity to give them the kind of legal rights and the beginning of political power. And they don't even have equal rights under the law. It's yeah, very unclear are... who they are, legally speaking, and how we're going to make sure that they rise up. Yeah, except that if you give them the vote, you'll have a revolt in the North. 
as well the as the south. Why? Why is there a Vulcan? In, because in of the all north? the people in the north who's, who uh, are fine with a union, and maybe even it's okay that they're free. But only Thaddeus Stevens and a few others feel like they should well, get I mean, I vote. think you, what you forget is that Emily is sort of an apologist for Senator Stevens. That, that is, that's... <laughs> That, that she is a, she's a stenographer for, for Senator Stevens' views. I will take that over being an apologist for Andrew Johnson any day. <laughs> you think, know, it is, it is worth noting President that— President Johnson, will, you know, is going to be—I'm I, I, interested, Emily, actually. Let's, let's talk about this. What do you think President Johnson is going to have to do to win your vote in 1868? Oh, wait, you don't have a vote. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> On this stage, and I don't think there's anything. I think the idea that Andrew Johnson is going to be the answer, and that he can really stand in Lincoln's shoes. I mean, this is an enormous loss that the country is going to pay for for a very long time. And 150 years. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the radical Republicans, um, with whom I do indeed at this moment identify, if never again, are going You're to all have over to the band place. together and, and pass laws with a lot of strength over Johnson's veto so that we can make sure to protect the rights of the people I've, who should be reconstructing the South. And those are not the people who just fought against us. Those people need to wait in line. I mean, Emily, you're I'm, I'm correct in thinking you're a Hebrew, right? You're of the, the Hebrew religion? <laughs> yes. Yes. So you know that the person who's going to enforce these is all these changes that you want to make in the South and the suffrage for the former slaves is General Grant, who, is, who you know expelled, tried to expel the Jews of Tennessee during the war. Went, wait, okay. Do you know that? I mean, how do you feel as a, as a Hebrew about that, about General Grant being the person who's going to carry these orders out? Well, in fact, I am still stuck in my shtetl somewhere yeah. in Poland, but... <laughs> <laughs> but... I think that is not the priority right now. As, as important as religious freedom and religious rights are, and, and in fact, I think we could pass the kind of law and constitutional amendment that would guarantee equal protection to everyone and would include religious minorities along with racial minorities. So, John, let's, I mean, it's awfully soon to do this, but, you know, I think one thing we want to think about is President Lincoln's legacy. How would you, of our 16 presidents, do you think he's in the top quarter with with Presidents Washington and Jefferson and Polk? Or where do you think, or is he down with President Pierce and, and Buchanan, perhaps? Where do you think and he's going to be? Don't forget Millard Fillmore. Uh, Zachary Taylor, John Tyler, William Henry Harrison. Well, William Henry Harrison, we know he's 16. Um, it was a terrible cold. Well, you've got Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Monroe, Adams, Jackson. So you've got you know, through the first seven. So, might, so Lincoln perhaps not So the Lincoln top maybe not, you know. I mean, you've got half of the country thinks he's a tyrant. You know, I mean, he did run roughshod over the Constitution in, in furtherance of I his did, It's aims. funny, we didn't hear a lot about that from Emily, did we? About the suspension. Because I thought, I mean, I believe that Emily was, is a graduate of Yale I'm a pragmatist. Yale, Yale University Law School. means versus ends on this one. It was a war. He unified the country. He saved the Union by fighting this terrible war. He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stop right there. I think in 150 years, people are going to really support that view. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they'll care a lot about the Transcontinental Railroad? Yes, of course they will. Yeah, because of uh, the Civil War changed the way, or I'll pose it as a question. It's a collect, the first act of collective action of this country. I mean, when the revolt against the British was individual colonies 
banding together, but mostly as individuals. This creates a situation in which the United States is bound together in this, with a sense of union like it's never been before. So the Continental Railroad stitches that union together further as far as commerce is concerned. So we've had it now in war and in commerce. So the two are entwined. Will you support an amendment to the Constitution that would guarantee equal rights and due process of law for everyone? I mean, I really want to see what President Johnson's going to say about that. I don't think he has long in the job. Now we have a word from a new sponsor. The GabFest is sponsored this week by Dr. Rowell's Tonic Tablets. (laughs) We come with glad tidings for all who are weak with a message of hope to delicate women, puny children, and weak men. There is a new way to tint pale cheeks with the glow of health, new life for weak stomachs, weak nerves, and weak kidneys. Are you weaker, thinner, paler by the day with no energy, no appetite or strength, no desire for work or recreation, nervous, peevish, sleepless, sick of heart, and sore of limb? These are the conditions of countless sick men and women throughout these United States who are awaiting a message of hope and cheer. There is no excuse for you to be sick, for there's now a medicine that will heal you. Dr. Rowell's tonic tablets purify the blood, aid the kidneys, soothe the stomach, and sweeten the breath. Dr. Rowell's tonics, which contain extracts of quinine, sarsaparilla, and pure cocaine of China, also (laughs) regulate the liver and drive every single impurity out of the body. And, of course, there's a special offer for GabFest listeners. (laughs) Telegraph the word GabFest to Dr. E. Rowell, Utica, New York, for free one-week supply of tablets with your order. I did. It's amazing. I had a cold earlier this winter. Look how hale and hearty I am. That's right. Yesterday, he didn't have a beard. (laughs) I want to learn Morse code so we can all telegraph that. We're going to telegraph. The telegraph operator can do it for you, Emily. Dr. Rowell's tonic tablets. You just have to wait in line, like at the post office. Oh, no. (laughs) 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 Dr. Rowell's tonic tablets They make sick people well Back to the show Let's go to uh... Now let's go to Some of the year's best cocktail chatter These are probably going to be long cocktail chatters Because when you do best it's always like oh we should do the longest one Or something So these are probably going to be long Apologies (laughs) Emily your chatter was about your son's debate with Nate Silver Oh I'm so glad we're replaying that. You know, my son is still can't bear to listen to that segment. It's so funny. He he said the other day that maybe in 30 years he would be able to listen to it. So that's uh, that'll be you'll hear Emily's chatter first. My chatter is about a glorious event in the life of my 12-year-old son, Simon, this week, who got to go on Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. He had the time of his life. I got to read you guys the title of this um, podcast episode, which Simon is just in love with. Lonely LeBron, Dominant Serena, and Nate Silver versus a 12-year-old. Simon took on Nate over how they do the dynasty rankings at um, for basketball dynasties. This came out of a chatter that I did a couple weeks ago after Simon sent Nate and 538 an email. And it was just the most fun ever. Um, Jody Avergan... Micah Cohen, Nate, these guys were so nice to my kid. And he just like absolutely enjoyed himself beyond belief. And I got to be the very proud mom. It was super, super fun. So we're going to play you a short clip of Simon and Nate going at it over the 1960s Celtics and basketball dynasties. One thing that interested me was I wanted to know in a random 
situation, what are the odds, like just by random chance, yeah. that a single team would win 11 out of 13 championships in a 10-team league? And the answer I got was 1 in 63 billion. 1 in 63 billion if you're just drawing lottery balls yeah. that would come up green again mm-hmm. and again. And then I wanted to calculate that for the Spurs. And what I found that was really interesting to me was that it was only 1 in 100,000. That's still pretty good. True, but it's a little bit less. But so for the Spurs, and you're saying out of 30 teams. Instead. Yeah, out of 30 teams. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is some good math, right? I guess our argument that was about how much to weight championships versus versus everything else. I'm a Celtics fan, so I'm probably a bit biased. A biased. But uh, no matter what the numbers say to me, I will always pretty much feel that you can't argue with championships. And they had a lot of them. Yeah. A lot of rings for Bill Russell. Mm-hmm. More than he could fit in all his hands. <laughs> all right. That is 12-year-old sports nerd heaven. Please, listeners, go out there. Subscribe to Hot Takedown. Um, I am so grateful to you guys for having Simon on. Thank you. Our next chatter is from John Dickerson. He's not here. He actually picked one from that same Abraham Lincoln show, as did I, in fact. Both of our chatters come from that show. Jeez, you guys really like that show. I guess so. What were your chatters about? Well, John's was about Warren Harding. Oh, right. Very funny. Very excellent. And then immediately after John, you'll hear me. And my chatter is also from that that same live show. And it was about my serendipitous meeting with a Pentecostal pastor in Malawi. That was a great one, too. Excellent. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're, when you're uh, having your tonic tablet with a... I don't know what you would take it with. I'm not sure. Take it with the gin. Maybe it has quinine in it, so have it with some gin. There's nothing that doesn't go well with gin. What are you going to be chattering about? So I'm going to read to you from a little pamphlet I have here called The Serious Lesson in President Harding's Case of Gonorrhea. <laughs> now... Some of you may remember this from childhood. I don't know. <laughs> Nothing goes better with milk and cookies at night. Um, Dramatic reading? This, well, it's, it's going to be a, a whole thing. Uh, <laughs> so it starts by saying the late President Harding suffered from the plague of untaught youths, and we should add the plague of uninformed or careless adults, the all-too-familiar venereal disease known as gonorrhea. Now, you may wonder why I'm reading you um, from this pamphlet. No, well, I wonder why it exists. Well, that's, well, yeah. So I came across this in some presidential research that I've been doing about old, you know, old presidents. And you may remember also, by the way, there was a gamfest that I wasn't on, damn it, that, uh, in which you talked about his love letters. President Harding, as everybody will remember, was, was quite an amorous fellow. And, um, and he had many, he had several affairs. His longest one was with Carrie Phillips, who he described in his letter as having pillowing breasts uh, and, and a variety of other things that I won't go into. But you had a long discussion. Leibovitch was With, on the show about I this. I it was Jeff Goldberg. Anyway. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Okay. Was it go Goldberg? on. Oh, yeah. okay. Anyway, Randy Fellow. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so what struck me <laughs> is that this exists. And what this is, is it's one of these pamphlets. It's not the only one. Uh, I mean, there, there's the only one about Harding. He wasn't that Randy. Um, <laughs> But they were called Little Blue Books, and they were published between, under a variety of different names between 1919 and 1978 by a person named E. Haldeman Julius. And these pamphlets were basically like the 
for me anyway, in my theory of the case, like the internet before we had the internet, which was that they covered, you, you could sign up and you'd get five of them in the mail and they came under, the, uh, they were called Appeals Pocket Series, People's Pocket Series, the 10 Cent Pocket. Um, and they would come to your house and they would be on crazy different subjects. I mean, some of them would be very straight ahead. Uh, one was um, how to write business letters. So you'd get your packet of five, and one would be how to write business letters and Harding's gonorrhea. <laughs> so, um, but I guess my point about the internet is that they were all, they had like, they had the secrets. They had the stuff that you didn't read about in school, that your parents didn't teach you about, that you didn't hear about at church. And it was like this strange, amazing, wonderful stuff that was hidden from you. And the others, some of the others in the, in the selections, there's something called the Knowledge of Life series, which uh, had a, a that series. That sounds like Scientology. You mean my previous description or no, the, the knowledge, knowledge of, of life? life well, except the knowledge of life series was um, all about it, one of the books was called the sex factor for men. Oh, and there was the sex factor for women. And this was where you learned about all the stuff that your parents ran from the room and didn't talk about. Then there was um, wild cats in petticoats, a garland of desperados. So you could read that in your uh, leisure what, hours. That may have been what President Harding had read. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's like, where are these wildcats? Um, so what is the serious lesson? Is there a teacher? So, oh, okay, sorry. And then my other one was a tour sorry. of Europe for stay-at-homes. But anyway, the reason I... <laughs> which is really like the internet, right? And, uh, I don't have to go anywhere. Look, Stad. Um but what I love about them is both the antiquated writing and this idea of like letting you in on secrets from a time where it, conspiracies kind of seem gentle. And um, so I'll just read you the, the actual case they make, though. makes perfect sense, right? We're doing this uh, unusual thing and calling attention forcibly to the venereal malady which afflicted the late President Harding. We are making a sensational story of this hidden chapter in President Harding's life. We are daring to speak plainly. We're casting overboard conventional notions of politeness and of what is or isn't fit to print. It is our conviction that the truth is fit to print and that it is especially our duty to print the truth when it involves a great lesson of health, happiness, and social sanity. False shame and silence have ruined thousands. Ah, the toll is countless of those who have suffered misery and defeat and the deepest tragedy because they were victims of the ignorance an obscurantism cultivated by Puritans who opposed plain speaking about sex. So, totally modern, thorough, and reasonable, but in, like, 1931, find, was scandalous and secret I and crazy. It, I find it bizarre and hypocritical for you, John, who can't stand it when we talked about John Edwards's peccadilloes, to be, be like, oh, let's talk about Warren Harding's VD. <laughs> it's okay if it's an old-timey font. Well, that's true of basically anything. Um, but also, I think the case is that more people suffered from gonorrhea in the United States and the world than suffered from getting caught in a hotel while visiting their mistress, which was the case with John Edwards. So I think the public policy case they make here is slightly stronger public than the one health. you were making. As you know, my concern for public health knows no bounds. Um, anyway, and I also love like the way they're... This, this is a reprint, of course, but they were all, like, packaged in, like... Well, this is a field notes, but they were all, like... These, like, I love little... It's a really little, old field little, notes. Um, it's, like, falling apart. Well, it's just a month old. Okay. I just carried it in my back pocket. But it, it, the point is they had these, like, this neat little, like, collect the whole set. You know, they had a kind of, I don't know, a nice antiquated look to them, too. So it appeals to every one of my fetishes. 
<laughs> other than the actual subject matter of the book. So I, I got an interesting email this week from uh, an old friend of mine named Martin Tom, and it just this is not there's not really a peg to this except that Martin emailed me, and it was just I, I just want to tell a story about him. So I was. Uh, 12 years ago, I was t- traveling in Africa doing a story for Slate about famine, and I was supposed to go from Ethiopia, uh, which had a famine, down to Zimbabwe, which also had a famine. And I had a connection in a country that I had not heard of, or I'd heard of the country, but it was a city I hadn't heard of. So it was Lalongwe, Malawi. I had to make my airplane connection in Lalongwe. And I get to Lalongwe, and I was catching an Air Zimbabwe plane, and you get to the long way and there is no Air Zimbabwe plane because Air Zimbabwe has decided that they can't send the plane and they're not going to send it for several more days at which point I had a ticket home so I was stuck in this country that I didn't know anything about and with nothing to do and as I was walking to the terminal a, a young man a Malawian struck up a conversation with me and he was he turned out his name was Martin Tom and he was a Pentecostal pastor and he was a Pentecostal pastor and he was on his way back from uh, a revival meeting in Uganda, and he just we just started talking. He was incredibly nice, and then I got stranded. I was there at customs, and I couldn't get into the country. And they finally just gave me a, like a one day visa. And Martin waited for me, and he was and he said, you know, why don't you come home with me? And so I was like, well, why not? Um, and, and so we started talking. We were waiting at the airport. And we started talking. And he was ex- like excited beyond excited that I was Jewish. And he kept saying, you know, we're both sons of Abraham. You're a son of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. And he just kept saying, you know, the Lord has sent you to me for a reason, David. And I was like, I don't think so, but <laughs> maybe. And, and so uh, he brings me home and he um, introduces me to his wife and his baby who cries, who, the baby had never seen a white person before and was like cried every time he saw me. It was really, it was, it was disturbing. And he actually gave me the shoes off his feet. He gave me his sandals because um, my, sh- I can't remember why, but like he, for some reason I didn't have you my shoes. You had no shoes. I you had no shoes that I could wear. And so he gave me his sandals um, and he put me up and, and showed me around town for a couple of days and was unbelievably, he was just like the most hospitable, wonderful, generous host. And he kept saying, you know, the Lord sent me to you for a reason. And, and so I end up going home. But I wrote a story um, for Slate because I, you know, I couldn't write a story about going to Zimbabwe because I wasn't there. So it was, I just wrote a story about this guy and how he'd been nice to me and how he was a Pentecostal pastor. And so what happened was Martin at that point had a, he didn't have, he had a church of 50 people that met in a, in a basement um, in the long way. And he, he just quit being an insurance salesman. And he, that was what he was trying to do with his life. And, and so I wrote the story about him and I started to get emails from Pentecostals in the U.S. saying, we hear about Brother Martin's mission in Malawi. It's great. Can we get in touch with him? And so I started to put Pentecostals in the U.S. in touch with Martin back in Malawi. And then one of the leading Pentecostal pastors in the U.S. said, like, I'm going to go do a mission and do a revival in Malawi because it seems like there are a lot of, you know, Christians in Malawi. And, and so he had Martin come in and, and be his uh, kind of sidekick for this, for this mission in Malawi. And this happened over and over again. And ultimately, Martin this was during the Bush years, and so we started to get some of that money that the Bush folks were spending on faith-based programs overseas, and Martin got some of that, and he became the leading pastor in Malawi <laughs> because of all this money that started to come in and all this American effort, and he, he's sort of become like the James Carville of Malawi. He's like the, also the, the campaign manager for, for the leading presidential candidate, and it was this weird thing where he thought, okay, it's going it, to, you've sent, God has sent you, David Plotz, to me for a reason. And it turned out that he was right. And, 
And it was, it's been like, it's like as a person who is, an, you know, is an atheist and a Jew and, a, and someone who has absolutely no patience at all for the theology that Martin teaches and, you know, no, no interest in it. His, like, the, the fact that this act of kindness from him and this act of generosity, this act of faith of him, you know, 12 years ago has led for him in return to this, this incredible prosperity and opportunity uh, is sort of humbling. Anyway, that's, it Does was that make just, you like the patron saint of Malawi? Uh, he was, his, uh, Malawi. no, I don't think so. But he did invite me to the presidential inauguration, but his candidate lost. So I didn't, oh. I didn't get to go. Right, he lost by like one, one point. That was fantastic. Plus, you got a, you you did you got a chatter out of it, so you got something too. There you, you know. go. <laughs> it's not it's not the you know preservation of your soul for eternity, but it is a chatter. <laughs> <laughs> Every journey starts we, we, with the yeah, first exactly. step. Exactly. Yeah. In someone else's sandals. <laughs> That does it for our regular show. Our intern is Al Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. As a Christmas gift to you, I'm now going to skip the rest of the credits, which is just ways to contact us. Basically, Slate.com slash GabFest. Go there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, have a great holiday. I'm David Plotz. 